Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, that you have brought us together today. This is your day and that you have your word for us. We ask that you be with our teacher, Bob. We ask that you specially bless Bob's mother, Pastor Eric, and Brian. And, Lord, we ask that you, uh, you know every one of our needs, Lord. You provide, you provide to the extent that you, know, that you know within your will. So we thank you for your provision. And we thank you for the freedom that we have to study your word. And your word is truth. We thank you for your truth. In Jesus' name, amen. I had that going, and now it's... There it is. The problem seems to be that connector right there. Okay, I think I'm on. Uh, we got a signal. We got recording. We're in Acts. We're going to talk about Antioch becoming a new key center for the spread of Christianity in the Roman Empire, reminding you that in Luke Acts, both at the end of Luke and beginning of Acts, Jesus told the disciples that they'd be his witnesses, Jerusalem, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. And then we see Acts demonstrating how through the Holy Spirit's work, this is being literally fulfilled. And it says in Acts eleven twenty one to 23, and the hand of the Lord was with them, and a large number who believed turned to the Lord. The news about them reached the ears of the church of Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas off to Antioch. Then when he arrived and witnessed the grace of God, he rejoiced and began to encourage them all with resolute heart to remain true to the Lord. So God was at work fulfilling the prediction that Jesus made in the Great Commission as recorded in Luke Acts. And as I've been pointing out, in Acts, the role of the apostles is not to, so far as hasn't been that they left Jerusalem and went out to spread the gospel. They stayed at Jerusalem. And there, there's going to be some issues with Jerusalem. I pointed that out. But God used other people like Philip and now um, Barnabas is going as an emissary and then Paul to spread the gospel throughout the world as they knew it, particularly the Roman Empire. And what the apostles' role became was to verify the validity of a work that happened, such as, for example, in Samaria. Remember, they sent Peter and John to Samaria to verify that the Samaritans really did come to Christ. Now, I was going to quote Dr. Tannehill. Sometimes people ask me what, what are some good resources to invest in. If you're a person who wants to do more with your scholarly education, I would suggest 
that you purchase Robert Tannehill's two-volume work, The Narrative Unity of Luke Acts. That work, I believe, is seminal, and it has helped me immensely. In a lot of ways, it was worth being in seminary in the 90s to find out about it, because it has really helped me reading Luke Acts. And it will help theologically. People say, well, how does that actually help us in any practical way? Well, let me tell you one way. There's a stupid doctrine out there, and I don't mind calling it that, that was, that's being promulgated by a false teacher by the name of Les Feldig, who claims that the Gospels are not for the church. The Gospels are basically Jewish law, and that the church doesn't, isn't bound by anything that Jesus taught. That was just for the Jews. And then the gospel is only really what's taught by Paul. Now, I wrote an article about that. It is so ridiculous, but people believe it. And I get emails from people wanting to debate it. How can you believe it? And I would say this. If you read Luke Acts for the two-volume work that it is and see how Luke is intended for the same readers and that ideas and themes that begin in Luke 1, 2, 3, and 4, and so on are not wrapped up until the end of Acts, how can you say Luke is not for the church but part of Acts is? The only way you can be consistent is to say that Acts isn't for the church either. Some do. Some of these hyper-dispensationalists say we don't even have to listen to Acts. Peter's not for the church. James's not for the church. John's not for the church. Nothing but Paul. And then when you start uh, rebuking them using Paul, then, well, Paul didn't learn it all right away. So don't listen to these things. Dear saints, we can do better than that. Some of the emails I get reflect people listening to things that are so bad and irrational and off base. I'm thinking, what happened? Why can't people think? And if you can't think, start by learning how to read, and then reading, you'll learn how to think. But if you read Luke Acts, and then Luke certainly thought what he was writing was for the church. And do you really think that the teachings of Jesus aren't for the followers of Jesus? Let's ignore Jesus. And these guys are old and pious and watch out for kind old gentlemen. They're teaching false doctrine because it's really bad. I talked to one pastor who was debating a follower of this Les Feldick. She didn't know anything. Well, I got to call Les Feldick. Well, I got to call Les Feldick. She didn't know anything other than what he told her to believe. Don't do that to yourself. Dear ones, you can read. You can know what God said. You can understand the author's intent because we Know that the Bible teaches the priesthood of every believer. You, each of you, is a priest to God. And you 
can know what God said. You can preach the gospel and you can understand. Now, in that regard, let's just look at this right here, because here's another one of these teachings. And I'm, I get emails from people who want to want me to. They, and by the way, they all have to use the King James because that proves they're pious. It's another stupid doctrine out there. <laughs> I refuted that, but they don't care. They're more pious than dummies like me because they only know the King James and they don't even know that language very well. Yes, brother. I, ju I just have to, you know, kind of emphasize what you're saying. I get people that ask me, well, which version do you read? Which version do you guys study in your church? And we say, I, I usually say the Hebrew and the Greek. That's, that's where, in other words, and then we look at the, and right. then that kind of shuts up people about King James and all that. Well, I see, I don't know why Christians can't think people want to join something. And if it's eccentric or hyper pious or unique in some weird way, it makes them feel better. Do we want to know what God said or not? And if we can know what God said, do we have to call some old guy in Texas to find out what to do with it? Oh, don't listen to that. That was only for the Jews. Don't listen to that. That was only for the Jews. No, don't listen to John. Don't listen to 1 John. That was only for the Jews. Don't listen to most of Acts. I'll tell you what you get to listen to. The rest of it's only for the Jews. Hello. Hey, um, so as I was thinking about, um, you know, like the Old Testament, like how that applies to the New Testament. Even like I was just learning the other day, you know, someone was encouraging me how we have examples of what God's doing in the New Testament in the Old Testament. And I was thinking about the sacrifices, the thank offerings, the um, all these offerings. And I was just thinking, wow, that, that applies to us as believers in the sense of like he, he says he wants a people zealous for good deeds, and like he gives us all these laws in the New Testament. I was told, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, there's like a thousand some laws in the New Testament. And um, like there's things that he's got for us to do, but I was looking like in the Old Testament, they were, you know, commanded to give 10% here, do this, to give this the first. But they're like examples to us in the New Testament that give, you know, the first. We, we give ourselves to God as living sacrifices. I mean, we're just constantly serving okay. God. So your question but, is, how does the old then, apply to the new? Well, not so much, but I was just going to say that and, uh, and then go into, like, the gospel. So the new covenant is ratified in Jesus' blood. So that would be, right. that would be after the, his death. So in a sense, you know, you've almost got, you know, a prophet of the Old Testament, you know, Jesus, um, until the covenant is ratified. Not that he's not speaking about the new covenant. He's talking about Actually, the Holy it starts Spirit. before that. It starts on the Mount of Transfiguration. <clears throat> and yeah. some people, I think, have rightly said the last prophet of the Old Testament was John the Baptist. Mm -hmm. Because remember, doesn't the don't the gospel say that John the Baptist was the Elijah who would come? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So Malachi prophesies that somebody would come before the great terrible day of the Lord. It turns out to be John the Baptist. But at the Mount of Transfiguration, which we've covered, Jesus is identified as the one Moses predicted in Deuteronomy 28, 15. And as we've said, Moses and Elijah were there as witnesses 
from the law and prophets, in a sense, that this is it. This is what they were all telling us. And thanks for the question, Eric. I would also suggest do a great, do a study of Hebrews. It's so beautiful. And if you want a little help, the radio that we've done on it, um, that we're broadcasting through CIC, we get a lot of good feedback. If you learn Hebrews, you get a really good idea about how the old is fulfilled in the new. And then another issue is coming up, and I'll be dealing with it in a future sermon. That was that uh, the fact that there are laws in moral teaching in the New Testament, does that imply salvation by works? I get emails from people who tell me that. If there's anything that Jesus or anybody taught that's a moral law that's binding, then we're teaching salvation by works. And so the claim is salvation is based on only believing facts about Jesus. And and some would say, basically, 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 6, that's it. Any more than that, and you're guilty of teaching salvation by works. So if you give mental assent to facts about Jesus, that's it. You're saved. And if anybody tells you that Jesus is the Lord of all believers, if they're really believers, they should be marked and avoided. I just got an email to that effect. And so they were marking and avoiding John MacArthur and rebuking me for quoting him. Because John MacArthur says that Jesus is Lord of the church. Okay. This sort of, you know, then they turn around and decry people going over to Calvinism. But I'll tell you what's driving them there. These really stupid things that non-Calvinists are saying. If we can't do any better than that, then don't complain that they go over to creedal Calvinism. Because this doesn't make any sense either. And I'm not a creedal Calvinist. Every one of them would would excommunicate me in a moment. Because I reject their ecclesiology, I reject their eschatology, and I accuse them of being inconsistent in their hermeneutic and unwillingness to believe what God said about the fulfillment of his promises to Israel and to the fathers. I will soon be doing a slide sometime this summer that's based on what Eric did on this from Romans. Let's use the same hermeneutic in Romans 11 that we did in Romans 9, and we'll get it right. This is my, my plea. We can do this. We, it doesn't have to be this complicated. Now, let's just talk about, is that still right? I think there's something that's not right. It's me here. Anyhow, here, let's look right here, right in front of us. And a large number who believe turned to the Lord. Now, is that stating one thing that happened, they were converted, or is this two stages, which some people would try to claim? Believing means facts, or repenting or believing simply means mental assent to facts about Jesus, 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 6. That's it. And then there was a second stage where they actually turn to the Lord and serve him as Lord. So there's two stages. There's two kinds of Christians. 
the ones for whom Jesus is Savior based on mental assent, and others who have a higher order Christianity who actually somehow Jesus is their Lord. But lordship is only for certain elite Christians, and it's optional. That's, I don't believe that, but that's the emails I get. I like getting emails that I know what to rebuke. This, and the proof was the thief on the cross. I'm not, I'm not denying, and in fact, I affirm strongly that the thief on the cross believed in turn to the Lord. Because he believed that Jesus would have, he didn't just believe facts about Jesus. He believed that Jesus would actually have a kingdom as he had said earlier that he would. He was saved. And he didn't have time to do a whole big process of discipleship for Jesus to become Lord. When we turn to the Lord, here's another thing that these uh inadequate theologies miss because they don't read. If you look up the word for turned, believed is pistuo, turned is epistrepho, and turned, that term, is thematic in Luke Acts. Could someone look up Luke 1, 16, 17? Let me illustrate what I'm saying here. The narrative unity of Luke X. Luke 1, 16 and 17. And then, <clears throat> Brian, could you look up um, Acts 3, 19? And I want to tell you that turned to the Lord is another way of describing repentance. So you're a Christian because you believe facts, but you have no interest in serving the Lord. If you want to comment, go I, ahead, Eric. Well, well, actually, I was going to read, but actually, the other thing I was going to comment on is that, uh, and I'm an amateur at this, but I'm trying to be a good reader, okay? <laughs> but what I've been taught is that in the Hebrew thinking, Hebrew concept of belief, does not include believing and not acting on it. In other words, in the Hebrew thought process... If you believe, you, you act. You don't just believe. Or you ought to. If yeah. you don't, there's something wrong with you. Right. That's right. what Jesus said. Yeah. In other words, Jesus the rebuked yeah. his critics for that. Right. They say they believe Moses, but they don't act on it because they won't come to Christ. Exactly. And then the other thing is, is that in Hebrew, uh, some of the Old Testament, you know, it's just wonderful, the, the poetic methodology where they have, and I don't remember the technical term, Bob, you might remember it, but it's like where we read, and the hand of the Lord was with them, and a large number who believed turned to the Lord. It's almost a redundancy. You know? Yeah. It's kind of like yeah. a parallel. Let me, let me, I love teaching, so that's what this class is about. I want all of us to learn theology right here in the church. If you go to seminary, you get Rick Warren or something. And I'm not saying don't get an education. I'm just saying buyer beware. Good point. In technical literature, that is called appositional with an A. Have you seen that word? These, there's a phrase and another phrase, and the scholars will say they are appositional. And what it means is what you just said, saying something using two different types of phrases but with the same or similar meaning. 
In other words, emphasizing it through the redundancy. So believing and turning to the Lord here are appositional. You are right. I get coffee? Go get it. Astute. Astute. (laughs) I'm just wondering if I can give kind of an illustration for... um, when, you know, Jesus is Lord of your life, because some, you know, for people listening or whatever, and maybe it won't be helpful, but I was thinking this, we had this conversation quite a bit this week, but um, uh, we have, for instance, Christian homosexual. If you're raised in a Christian home, you know, you know what the word says, uh, what God says about homosexuality. The culture, though, is forcing a different idea on us. So we're getting this conflict within ourselves. What do I do with that? Because I want to be nice. Somebody says their daughter is gay. What do I do with that? And so as Christians, we know that our job is to go back to the word of God. And if God's word, you know, and we are clear on it, we know what he teaches on it. And so it isn't about this friend's daughter anymore. It's about what God said about it. Right. And that's how he becomes Lord of our life. Anytime I have this conflict, I have to go back into his word and decide what has he spoken on this topic. It's not about me. It's not how I feel about it. It's not about feeling. It's you what know, God said. You know, Luann, let's continue that thought because I got an email from somebody with a link there. Now the, quote, new Calvinists are thinking about maybe the LGBT, whatever. Uh, here's, here's what we need to strongly consider. That we're able to identify the teachings of Christ and his apostles about what is or isn't sinful doesn't imply that we're capable of overcoming sin without turning to Christ. Okay, so somebody has a relative who's caught in a sin. Everybody who's not saved is caught into sin. There's just different versions of it. Okay? And Christianity is not the same as Christendom. All right? So we can't create a governmental system that's distinctively Christian is somehow going to cure sin without Christ. But we can't change definitions. So if some... Yes, and then we're going to go to Tom. But um, whatever it is, if somebody's a... What does it say? Let him who steals, steal no more. We're going to get to that in Ephesians sometime unless the rapture happens first. But later in Ephesians, Paul says, let him who steals, steal no more, but let him work with his hands in order to give to him who has need. I think I cited that pretty well from memory. So because some people are dyed in the wool thieves, do we have to demand that the church accepts thievery as a valid lifestyle? Some people are dyed in wool womanizers. Are we to therefore say the church has to accept that as a valid lifestyle? So whatever our sins are, they have to show us how badly we need Christ. 
We can't change what's good and what's evil by definition in order, in other words, some people think if we just change what we call things, then there won't be a sin problem. If everybody's okay just the way they are, then we don't have a problem. But you know, as I've said before, there's an ontological reality to this. That's sort of a redundancy itself. Sin is still sin. I was a horrible sinner, and I wanted to go my own way. But when I came to Christ, I wasn't looking for somebody to say, well, that's okay, Bob. Go ahead and blaspheme Christ now that you're a Christian. We don't need somebody to tell us that because when we turn to the Lord, if we believe we turn to the Lord, and what does it say at the bottom of our passage? We're in Acts 11, 11 to 23. Encourage them with a resolute heart to remain true to the Lord. Is that lordship or not? Are they laying too many burdens on the saints that they should be true to the Lord? We can't redefine anything. We need to cry out to God to help us. Dear Jesus, help me remain true to you. I don't believe in me, but I believe in Jesus. If he can keep me true to him, he can keep anybody true to him. Do you feel that way? Amen. Tom. You know, I lost my faith for close to... 20 years if I ever had it in the first place, but uh, I um, came to to really start to understand the inerrancy of Scripture. Either it is or it isn't, and it, either it's false or it's real. And I was listening to Ken Ham this week talking about the strategy today is to really, uh, uh, really, I guess, talk about the Bible is not inerrant. So what Luann had mentioned, and we come back and we talk about, you know, this is what it says in the Bible. The strategy of a lot of the churches today are to really to talk that the Bible is not inerrant. And uh, so that's what you see happening today is a total confusion of people and where they're at today. Yeah, you know what's really ironic? Thank you for those comments. You know what's ironic about that? The more they do that, And the more we keep uncovering documents, (coughs) for example, at Qumran. Let me give you an example, Tom, of of how it's a dumb strategy because they're going to be proven wrong. Okay. They used to say Daniel was concocted many, many years after it claimed to be. In other words, Daniel wasn't really a contemporary with Nebuchadnezzar, and it isn't what it claims to be because it predicted things like Antiochus Epiphanes, not by name, but obviously Antiochus Epiphanes happened much later than Daniel and literally happened in such detail that the liberals said Daniel was written way, way after the fact. So what happens? We find ancient documents actually older than Antiochus Epiphanes that had Daniel predicting what happened. Well, you can't claim, the only thing you can claim is like a Passover plot sort of silliness. Antiochus read it and decided to be that evil beast. Well, obviously that didn't happen. He was who he was, an almost Antichrist type. If there's anything that's proven true, it's the Bible. 
and I had a really long discussion with my grandson. I don't, uh, who graduated from college, and he, you know, he has a lot of college students just trying to decide what he wants to believe, and he hasn't claimed to be a Christian. But he was saying, well, they've got the DNA and so on and so on. And um, I said, so what are your, what's your claim about how old the human race is then? He said, well, maybe like 12,000 years. I said, we're talking about the same time scheme, basically, is what you might extrapolate from the Bible, whether that's even a valid way to do things. The Bible's not claiming the human race is only 5,000 years old or whatever. Uh, so I said, I don't, I don't see anything overturning the Bible. And it was science that led me to believe in the Bible when the church told me it wasn't true. So I, we got to stand up for what the Bible says. And the moral law in the Bible isn't wrong because it makes somebody feel bad. <laughs> the Bible doesn't exist to make us feel good. It exists to lead us to the forgiveness of sins and the power of God working in our lives to change us. And that's why I quoted Ephesians. There's nothing impractical about it. So what you used to do was steal. That's how you live. Now you come to Christ. So you turn into a worker and a giver. Is that, does that sound practical? It's a good plan. Empty a lot of jails. There's nothing impractical about it. Are you being abused because you feel bad working rather than stealing? Of course not. I don't say anybody would say that. But you can go right down the line with any other moral law in the Bible. Yes. Well, I was just going to say regarding the mental ascent thing, and we had some friends, we had a little discussion with them about that. But with um, Mark you know, 14 and 15, 15, this is Jesus saying, the time is fulfilled yes. and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And that came from Jesus himself, and I don't know how you get around that. You don't. <laughs> Repentance ought to be preached. Jesus commanded that. That's Mark 1, 14 and 15. That repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be preached starting in Jerusalem and it's to be preached to all the nations. So repentance is a valid part of the gospel. And so people say repentance is merely mental assent. And if you command it, you're, you're saying works. They don't look at this where synonymously turn to the Lord is the same idea as repenting. Epistrepho. Epistrepho. Boy, some people have verses that are going to... Um, fall out of their mind before they get to read them. Brian, do you still got your verse? And Eric? Okay. Yeah, I, I, I haven't forgotten. Okay, we have so many comments. Hang and on. Scott, should Scott, I read? have Scott talk, and then we'll do our okay. verses. Okay. I was just going to tag on to what Barbara was saying, and, and that um, this no lordship and season theology is essentially the same thing. And then um, I think it was Mike Jenner who was saying that uh, uh, the sinner's prayer doesn't save anybody, uh, and God can save people in spite of it, but not because of it. Good point. <laughs> Say a little prayer, check the card, and drop an offering. Now you're a Christian. I know. Sign up, 
for 101, 201, 301, 401, take an oath. I'm <coughs> thinking of Rick Warren. Take an oath before you even know what he's going to tell you. And then you get in these classes, and somewhere buried in there are some Christian doctrine. But that would be a good uh, target of claiming salvation by works. Cause work, 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 before you even know what you're signing up for. Conversion is a miraculous work of God that changes us from the inside out. When you're converted, you're never the same. You don't want to be the same. I don't, when I came to Christ down in Iowa, I didn't feel like I was oppressed because they told me to quit being a blasphemer. I was excited. I'd rather go to church and praise God than stay out of church and curse him. What about you? You'd rather praise God. Eric, read your verses and then Brian. A long time ago, we were going to read a couple of verses yes. here. So this, as we I got, recall... We've got to have a memory th- here. This is Luke 1, uh, verses 16 and 17. I, I, ho- I hope. <laughs> um, and this is about John the Baptist. And he will turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. It is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to their children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. The turn. Is not turning to the Lord? So to illustrate what I'm saying about the narrative unity, in Luke 1 you have turning to the Lord. And later in Luke, now let's look at Acts 3. Uh, about that. Acts 3.19. I'm going to actually start in 18 just to set it up. But the things which God announced beforehand by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. Therefore, repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. So John the Baptist, now Peter, repent and return. By the way, we have here in Acts 11 when the gospel goes to Antioch, Fast forward, Acts twenty six eighteen. While you're here, no wait, you got the mic. Either you or somebody, Acts twenty six eighteen. Let's read that too. Let's have a race. Whoever gets it first. Acts twenty six eighteen. Acts twenty six eighteen. Dun, 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 Come on. Don't they have a time clock on one of those shows to see how quickly you get it? Dun, 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 dun. Acts 26. 26, 18. I'm getting there. <laughs> Scott's go. got it over there if you don't. Okay, Scott. Scott. Okay. Does he have it? Okay, bring him to Mike. He won. I'll, I'll get it to you. Scott is the quickest to the verse. Technology. Yeah. Um, looks like 18 is in the middle of a sentence. 26, 18 is what Jesus, yes. But it, Paul is telling a Roman official what Jesus told Paul to do. He's quoting Jesus. He says, I am sending you to open their eyes so that they turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. Keep going. Yep. Uh, so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and and a share among those who are sanctified 
by me by faith in me yep it says share a lot now there again so john the baptist turned them to the lord peter turned to the lord here in in, in barnabas with barnabas at and uh before with philip at i think who went there was it philip come on here The hand of the Lord is with them. Who's them? Somebody look up the context. It's been a couple of weeks here. I've been working on Ephesians, so my mind went somewhere else. Anyhow, they turned to the Lord. Turned to the Lord. So epistrepho in the Greek is used many times synonymously with metanoeo. So the people say, which in its basic form means to change your mind, but in the context, obviously, you're changing more than your mind because you're being encouraged to remain true to the Lord. What do you have, Brian? Here, could you grab that mic? Or, I got a short cord I can't reach. The them, the them is those who were scattered. The ones that were scattered. Okay. Right. I was looking for the context. Those that were scattered because of persecution ended up spreading the gospel. So praise God. Dear ones, let's understand. I hope we go to church every Sunday and learn something so we're better readers, so we can understand what God said. It's always to your benefit to know what God said. God cannot lie. God's word is a sanctifying thing. And the more we know the truth, and even in regard to temptation, yes, God uses his true moral law to help us because we might be thinking of some tempting thing like maybe I should go into a huge debt and get a great big truck that I can't afford so I don't have to take care of my family then I can think the Lord said thou shalt not covet drive your old truck no, I'm not shaming anybody that actually has a truck, but I'm not. I'm actually happy with my old truck because that way it gets beat up and it don't make me cry any. But I'm giving an illustration. Thou shalt not covet. Thou shalt not covet. Good. I've got to quit thinking that way. In all and everything, give thanks. With whatever you do, be content. Godliness with contentment is great gain. See, see, if you know the Bible, it helps you with sanctification. If I become discontented, I remember what God said. Just knowing that it said it isn't enough, but the Holy Spirit comes to us through the word, as Luther said. And he's right about that. So the Holy Spirit is using the word to help me think in better ways and then behave in better ways. That's sanctification. Now, I was going to quote. Um, oh, here's another couple passages. Norm, could you look up Acts eleven twenty one, Cladorus, Acts fourteen fifteen. We'll keep seeing this. The next time somebody says repentance is nothing but men- mental assent, then tell them, well, what about epistrepho? And turning, what do you say about that? Well, they, they don't want you to even know that it's there. Acts 
1121, Norm. Okay. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a large number who believed. Oh, it's right here. We just did it. Turn to. <laughs> I'm going to have a slope forehead from going. Well, 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 but just a it's minute. It's been though. so long. Well, but, but I have to. I have to just say this. I've been trying something new where I read the same book like 10 or 12 times in a row. So maybe that's what we're doing here. We're reading the yeah, same yeah. thing over we're and over. We're reinforcing it. Let's try... Uh, uh, actually, Norm, you, well, she's reading Acts 14, 15. You can look up 15, 19. Acts 15, 19. Go ahead and do Acts 14, 15. Men, why are you doing these things? We are men also with the same nature as you, and we are proclaiming good news to you that you should turn from the worthless things to the living God who made the heaven and the earth, the sea, and everything in them. Great. In the context, remember they wanted to worship Paul like they were pagans? They said, we're preaching to you not to do this thing. Turn from these same things. Who says we can't preach repentance when we preach to the lost? Yes, Norm. Okay, 1519. Therefore, it is my judgment that we do not trouble those who are turning to God from among the Gentiles. Right. So repentance is turning to God. Yes, Christy. Harry, Christy has something. I just have one more to add. That, um, it was right after the um, Acts 26, uh, 18. So Paul's still talking to King Agrippa. He says, so King Agrippa, I did not prove disobedient to the heavenly vision, but kept declaring both to those of Damascus first and also at Jerusalem and then throughout all the region of Judea and even to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds appropriate to repentance. Great verse. <laughs> Yeah. That, I think, coffee. well, you got water, but coffee. coffee for sure. Astute reading. So now do you know what appositional is? That was a good example of appositional. All these different people should repent, turn to God, and perform deeds. That's telling us what conversion looks like. I didn't go to church to get saved. I left church because they didn't believe the Bible was true. But when I got saved, I went to church where they preached the Bible is true. Not because somebody told me I had to do it or I could never be saved. Because I wanted to. And you can't keep me away from here. It won't work. I'll be back. Because I love being with the people of God. And so do you. That's why you're here. We're not more noble in the sense of having some innate virtues that other people don't have. We're recipients of grace. And we love to be with the Lord's flock and to learn and to grow. So turning to God is another way of saying repenting. And so you have another word, epistrepho. So uh, let me uh, talk about the gospel spreading through the scattering of the saints. It's how God has chosen to do it. Which, by the way, Norm was reading something from the council when they went to Jerusalem to decide what to do about the Gentiles. One of the reasons that we're not under Jewish food laws and such things that Eric has preached on 
is because we, we can't put up barriers so that people can't come to Christ. In other words, we don't want to become so culturally eccentric that we don't even interact with the people who need Christ. The scattering, they would have just stayed in Jerusalem. That's where they wanted to be. Persecution scattered them. And wherever the Christians went, they went with the gospel and God used it to spread it. Now, Antioch was a strategic place. Let me read about that from another commentary about Antioch and its physical location, its relationship to the Roman Empire, and how it becomes a great sending place so that throughout the empire, the gospel goes, which is what God wants. Uh, Dr. Barclay says this, Antioch was the third greatest city in the world next to Rome and Alexandria. Stop right there. Alexandria was a city known for its Jewish and Greek scholarship and Hellenistic Judaism. And that's where the Septuagint came from. And And because of the climate, a lot of the really old manuscript we have proving the veracity of the Bible come from the area of Alexandria. So God in his providence kept the Bible intact and actually have, we have documents that prove that the liberal theories are false. And every time they, somebody said, every time they put a spade in the ground out in Middle East or even some of the other ancient places, another liberal theory bites the dust. <laughs> okay, Alexandria. It stood, says Barclay, near the mouth of the river Orontes, Orontes, 15 miles from the Mediterranean Sea. It was a lovely, it was lovely and cosmopolitan, but it was notorious for luxurious immorality. It was famous for chariot racing and the kind of deliberate pursuit of pleasure which went on literally night and day. But most of all, Antioch was famous for the worship of Daphne, whose temple stood five miles out of the town amid laurel groves. The legend was that Daphne, now this is a little gross, but it'll help us understand a lot of the things that are taught in the New Testament as an antidote to what was common amongst the Greeks and the Romans. The legend was that Daphne was a mortal girl with whom Apollo fell in, in love. He pursued her, and for safety, Daphne was charged, changed into a laurel bush, The priestesses of the temple of Daphne were sacred prostitutes, and nightly in the laurel groves, the pursuit was reenacted by worshipers and priestesses. The morals of Daphne, quote-unquote, was a phrase that all the world recognized as indicating loose living, unquote, Dr. Barclay. So here was rampant sexual perversion and immorality being done in the name of religion. So when we go forward in 
Ephesians, for example, we are seeing why Paul instructed Gentile believers to live differently. In other words, you're not bound by Jewish food laws. But you cannot partake in immorality. You can't live like the pagans. You can't steal. You can't go to the temple prostitutes. You can't act one early, this is a little later, one uh, Christian apologist decried all of this sort of thing. They're the loose morals of the people of the Roman Empire because they didn't think they needed to have morals. It wasn't just there. In England, several hundred years ago, it was just utterly immoral, rampantly immoral. And uh, it was necessary for those who believed and turned to the Lord to remain true to the Lord. They're in a city that was filled with this morals of Daphne, the prostitutes in the laurel bushes. This is just all night parties and nobody's going to say it was wrong. If you come to Christ, that is not how you live. Does this mean Christians never fall into anything? No, but what happens? Christians want God to change us. And if we fall into what we know is wrong, we cry out to God, God, help me. I can't live this way. It isn't right. It isn't from you. Help me, help me, help me. Does that make sense? We can't change the moral law of God, but we can ask God to change us. But when religion adopts the sort of thing that they have with this Daphne, you don't really even have to be religious. You can just be immoral. You get the same result. You're going to the same place. Christianity means turning to the Lord. And so it's so bad when these teachers come out and say, well, it's just mental assent. And Jesus, you can be a Christian, but Jesus isn't Lord. I imagine if somebody said that to Paul. What? What? Jesus is Lord is one thing I thought all Christians believed. Are we to say, well, we believe it, but we don't want it true in our life? Is that some sort of higher order achievement? No, it's what's true for Christians. If he wasn't Lord, I wouldn't care what he said. But I do. Do I always live up to what he said? No. But what he did say, say, say to me in the Bible helps me live differently than I would otherwise. Because it does make us think. So, uh, the morals of Daphne we don't want in the church. So, let's talk about Barnabas. Tannehill says this, Barnabas and those who sent him have experienced the grace of God. It is assumed that they are competent to recognize its presence. How did they recognize... How do you witness the grace of God? That's a good segue from this Daphne thing. How do you witness the grace of God, which we would consider invisible, right? Grace is an attribute. How do you witness it? By what God does in people's lives. First of all, they're willing to confess Christ. 
how to discern a true work of the Spirit. Secondly, Christ changes us. If people that used to go to the Daphne cult leave and quit doing that and gather with Christians and under the means of grace and worship God, would that be, if you saw that, would you witness the grace of God? When you see somebody converted that you used to know as a non-Christian, do you witness the grace of God? Oh, yes. When Christians are suffering grief because someone is sick or someone died or something we went through, we all suffer together. We pray for one another. We care about one another. Seeing that is witnessing the grace of God. God's grace, as Paul said, by the grace of God I am what I am, Paul said, but his grace toward me did not prove vain. Is there any such thing as vain grace or powerless grace or vacuous grace? No real grace always has an influence. It always changes us. Absolutely. Brian, I think of that one. If you ever, Brian's a good talker. Ask him about his story about how he used to mock the Christians next to where he lived. He was like the enemy of the Christians. And then when he was converted, he went over and told them they couldn't believe it, right? Exactly. And here he is wanting to serve God. And he was the enemy of the Christians. So that's what witnessing it is. Now, this gives Barnabas, says Tannehill, a certain authority. However, confirmation of the presence of God's grace also involves a commitment by Barnabas in Jerusalem. Barnabas sets out to work to support this community, and through him, the Jerusalem church is being led into the Gentile mission. Not because it planned this course of action, because it recognizes that what it values most highly is present in the lives of others. A lot of the great things that happen in church history happen by God's providential grace, not because of a missions planning committee. <laughs> if they turn it over to a missions planning committee, they'd say, well, let's just make the church the headquarters right here in Jerusalem. But God planned to scatter them. I'm not saying we can't have committees. But what ends up happening is what God does providentially. Plus, Barnabas, he, one of the te- Luke's techniques is to introduce somebody early, and then later they become more pr- prominent. Early in Acts, Barnabas is mentioned as son of encouragement. He's, he's a helper. He likes to help. He likes to encourage, and so on. I've said this before. Let me repeat it. People have asked over the decades, how do I know what my gift is? My answer, show up ready to serve. Show up ready to serve. You don't have to take a test to figure out what your gift is. Show up ready to serve and you'll end up doing what God gifted you to do. It's just how it works. It's better to show up and serve one another and let gifts come to the surface than turn it over to science. They gave me, I had to take some big test when I was in seminary because they required it of everybody. And they took all, they did all of this, I don't know, rigmarole, it was nonsense. But uh, anyhow, when it all got said and done, 
it was pretty obvious that I'm not going to be an artist <laughs> or a poet or somebody motivated by feelings. So I gravitate to the rational and the logical and the technical. Well, okay, that's fine, but that's what I do anyhow. People show up in church and they love to help. They serve. They, they, they help. They encourage. They pray. They visit. They care. They teach. We show up and God will just use us. Barnabas showed up. That's how God used him. And there's a basic business principle that I don't want to be guilty of teaching human wisdom, but it's so obvious. It's a truism. All the work in the world is done by the ones that show up. I used that in the boat the other day. All the fish in the world are caught by somebody with a line in the water. (laughs) I've never yet seen them bite when the line was sitting in the garage tied up. So we serve and then the Barnabases of the world show up and, and you have. And, well, we got through one slide. That's not so bad. <laughs> I'll close in prayer. and Let's pray for Eric. He's under the weather and I just see him walk through the parking lot. So he's going to preach. So he showed up to be instant in season and out, and he's not feeling so good. Let's pray for Eric. Thank you, Lord, that we can learn these things together and search your, your word and ask you to help us overcome sin and self selfishness and our own fears and doubts and become resolute and true to the Lord. Pray for Pastor Eric as he's been battling sickness but he's going to preach Romans to us, give him the strength and the grace, the healing he needs to complete that sermon to, our, to your glory and to our benefit. And we thank you for helping us, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. See you upstairs. <laughs>